Welcome to Oplan Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we bring you a conversation between Jorge Juan Rodriguez and Dr. Felipe Hinojosa about Dr. Hinojosa's new book, Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Jorge Juan Rodriguez V, and I'm a PhD candidate at Union Theological Seminary and Associate Director for Strategic Programming at the Hispanic Summer Program. With us today is Dr. Felipe Hinojosa, Associate Professor of History and Director of the Carlos H. Cantu Endowment at Texas A&M University. He also serves as editor of Latinx Talk and is the author of Latino Mennonites, Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Culture. Today we'll be discussing Dr. Hinojosa's newest book, Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio published by University of Texas Press and set to be released in January of 2021. In the late 1960s, the American city found itself in deep decline. An urban crisis fueled by, the federal, by federal policies wreaked destruction and displacement on poor and working class families. The urban drama included religious institutions, themselves undergoing fundamental change that debated whether to stay in the city or move to the suburbs. Against that backdrop, there was also the black and brown power movements that were raging all around, which challenged economic inequality and white supremacy. And in this, young Latino radicals began occupying churches and disrupting services to compel church communities to join their protests against urban renewal, poverty, police brutality, and racism. Dr. Hinojosa's forthcoming Apostles of Change tells the story of these occupations and establishes their context within the urban crisis, relates attention tensions they create relates the tensions they created and articulates the activist's bold new vision for church and the world. Through case studies from Chicago, Los Angeles, New York City, and Houston, Dr. Hinojosa reveals how Latino freedom movements frequently cross boundaries between faith and politics and argues that understanding the history of these radical politics is essential to understanding the dynamics, the dynamic changes in Latino religious groups from the late 1960s to the early 1980s. Welcome, Dr. Hinojosa. Jorge, thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. So to start, um, I want to ask a little bit about the book, but particularly about where this idea came from. So how do your personal narratives shape the story you tell in Apostles for Change? Or, or put differently, why did you want to tell this particular story? Well, so let me let me start like this. First off, I just want to thank HTI uh, Open Plaza for this opportunity to to talk about this book and for all of the folks that are helping us do this and put this together. Um, it's a real honor for me. HTI has been um, fundamental in my development as a scholar over the years. Uh, I've been involved with them for over ten years now, and so it it. Um, it's really great to uh, to be here um, uh, talking with everybody, uh, and 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 certainly great to, to be here with you, Jorge. Always always a good time, man. Yes, um, it is. Where do where do I start? You know, I I grew up in Brownsville, Texas, um, southernmost tip of Texas, there on the border. My dad was a a minister, uh, started a church down there, a Mennonite church, um, in the late '60s, early '70s, and so. From a very young age, uh, from the time I was born, actually, to you know, the 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 church has been fundamental in my life. Um, and I mean, I'm not just talking about um, you know the worship services or the sermons or all of that. I'm talking about the life, um, you know, uh, youth group, uh, you know, the the Sunday school sessions, all of the friends that we had. My entire life revolved around the church, and so. I feel like if all, you know, or at least some of historical research is, you know, autobiographical, we're all sort of trying to figure stuff out about our own lives and stuff that we write. Um, I think this book is reflective of that. Uh, I grew up surrounded by churches. I grew up surrounded by people that cared about uh, taking care of one another. Uh, the church that I attended was 
uh, a working class Mexican American congregation, um, very involved in the neighborhood that surrounded it. Uh, it was a sanctuary church in the late 80s and the early, early 1990s. Um, and so you're talking about a church that invested in the neighborhood. And so I feel like, you know, the stories that I want to tell as a historian are the ones that I feel are often left out, which is uh, the story of folks who, whose faith propels them to social action. And that could mean a variety of things. It could mean marching in the streets, but it could also mean, you know, setting up a program like we had in our church growing up called Mi Prójimo. Uh, which literally, you know, translates as my neighbor helping uh, people in, in the community to build their homes or to repair their homes if they had a leaky roof or whatever it was. And the way that I think about it growing up in that church is like, it was poor people helping poor people. Um, and so that forms, I think, the foundation of how I think about uh, Apostles of Change and, and, and the relationship that, that I write about between the neighborhood and the church here. Mm. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, you know, you bring up this interesting point about all academic research stemming from, you know, our lives. I oh, mean, we can, sure. we, we can we pretend like it doesn't, but in a lot of ways it does. And so I'm wondering, um, specifically, you know, you also, you talk in the book about occupations, these very specific types of um, engagements with faith and politics. I'm wondering, I mean, did you ever occupy a church? Like, where, where, where does the where does the idea of looking specifically at, at occupations uh, stem from, and how does it connect to this story that you're telling about this little boy on the border? I tell you what, man, it starts um, when I was writing my first book, and I learned about um, a group of African Americans in Southside Chicago that occupied a Mennonite church. Uh, for about a week and had a number of demands. That I think sparked interest in all of that in terms of wanting to like, well, did this happen anywhere else? And that led me then to James Foreman and the Black Manifesto, uh, which I'm sure our listeners know all about. Um, and James Foreman as the former leader of SNCC, but then the Black Economic Development Council and his pitch for, and really his demand that white churches uh, pay up reparations for the money and, and the wealth that they accumulated under slavery, $500 million, in fact. Uh, and Foreman was charismatic. Foreman had a message. He was clear and direct, and he was a national figure in many ways. And so um, it really starts off like me sort of thinking about, okay, is this an African-American phenomenon during the urban crisis? Um, a lot of these African-American leaders that are calling on the church and specifically the white church uh, to do this. Uh, but I had always known in the back of my mind, uh, or at least you sort of hear about, um, you know, the, the church occupation in New York City and in East Harlem in 1969, when the Young Lords occupied the first Spanish United Methodist Church. Um, and so I think it sort of pushed me to think about how active Latinos were in holding their institutions uh, accountable and their churches uh, accountable, and so um, it 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 really starts it really starts there in terms of like okay I'm working on this other book but I come across this really fascinating story and I want to pursue it. I finished that book and as soon as I finished uh, Latino Mennonites, I kid you not, I must have turned in the manuscript to Hopkins and started um, you know trying to find as much as I could on the Young Lords and the occupation in New York City. And that led me to Chicago, which we can talk about. That led me then to Houston. That led me to Los Angeles um, and to what I saw as sort of this pattern in 1969 and 1970. Um, and for me, you know, I, I don't know how other people do it. Certainly as a historian, uh, I don't start with a theoretical orientation. I don't start with, you know, uh, oh, I'm going to, you know, challenge whatever this idea is or that idea. I start with a story. That's really at the heart of this book is um, a fascination with the story. And I really worked hard probably for about the first five years of the research, knowing in my heart and in my mind that I had really great stories here, but really great stories aren't enough. You have to sort of be able to also um, explain them and, and have folks in different contexts understand them. And so what if they occupied churches if these radicals occupy churches for 
five days to approximately 20 days like they did in Houston. What does that even mean? Uh, mm -hmm. At the time, they were disregarded. Um, they're really looked at as, at least initially, as utter failures. They do nothing, uh, or at least that's what people thought initially. Um, as I detail in the book, um, it's really not about success or failure um, in this instance. It's really about the imagination and the ideas uh, and the thought process that went into that. And then what that did later for Latina and Latino religious reformers. And I can talk more about that um, well, as we go. Well, it seems like a great point to ask you a little bit more specifically about some of those stories that you bring up in the book. So you examine four occupations in four different cities across the US that all occur relatively within the same period. So we're talking about the late 1960s and early 1970s. And one nine to nineteen seventy, man. This is what Oh, so it's even a few months. It's it's well, it's May 69 to February 1970. Wow. Is really and, what we're talking about here in this book. And so I'm wondering, maybe can you um for those who might be new to this um uh, to these stories for whatever reason that they aren't uh, elevated in our narratives, either community narratives or academic narratives. Could you maybe talk a little bit about one or two of them and what, what happened in those occupations? And then we can get into why they why you think they're important enough to spend half a decade and 300 pages on. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, so it's essentially here's, you know, the, the, the real sort of breakdown is that we start in Chicago. And I, and, you know, let me acknowledge that when I write about Chicago or when I write about uh, New York, uh, I really, you, you have to begin with Elias Ortega Ponte's work on the Young Lords uh, in New York City, Joanna Fernandez's work um, in New York City uh, and, and with the churches there. Um, and and then on the other side, being able to also think about, okay, so if we're talking about an urban crisis here, there really is not um, uh, as much literature on how urban renewal, this push to push poor people out of neighborhoods, really new and recent immigrants that had Puerto Ricans and Mexicans that had come to the United States in the years after World War II. Um, we really don't know much about the Latino experience. Um, certainly there's been some great books. Lila Fernandez's book, Brown in the Windy City in Chicago um, is one of them. Uh, Lauren Thomas, uh, Lauren Thomas's book on um, New York City uh, is out there. There's also a whole slew of books, right? Yana Badover has written on Massachusetts now um, and um, Andrew Sandoval Strauss and his book on um, urban renewal and how immigrants save the American city really um, uh, has come out as well. So at the heart of, of these stories is this question of, of space and place and you know, who gets to decide where people live. And in, it starts in Chicago in May of 1969 when uh, Mayor Daley's plan of urban renewal, which really starts in the 1940s and into the 1950s, hits that neighborhood of Lincoln Park sort of mixed income, immigrant, it's a very sort of cosmopolitan area. Um, and the idea is that there's just, this is prime real estate right along Lake Michigan. This is an area that should be developed or at least that's what the daily machine is sort of thinking about. Um, and as this push is coming, um, activists within the organization, what really begins to, to be formed as a rainbow coalition come together and it's the Puerto Rican Young Lords which start out as a gang in Chicago and develop that political consciousness and do that. Their idea was this, if we're going to push back against urban renewal in Lincoln Park, there are three main institutions in Lincoln Park. Uh, DePaul University, there was a children's hospital in the area and McCormick Seminary. And what better way to call out the hypocrisy uh, of push, pushing poor people out than to go directly to McCormick Seminary and say, if you're training religious leaders, if you're training people of faith to do God's work in the world, uh, then certainly you will stand by us as we fight against uh, urban renewal. The seminary says, we really can't do that. 
and um, this coalition, not just the Young Lords, but a poor people's coalition, neighborhood folks come together and occupy the stone uh, academic building um, um, in, in McCormick Seminary. And they rename it after Manuel Ramos, a former Young Lord that had been killed by police officers just a few days uh, prior to that. And so it starts there. Um, they hold it. Here's the amazing thing and the interesting thing and, and what I think often gets left out of the story in Chicago when people write about the occupation of McCormick Seminary. The Presbyterians were having their national conference right at the same time. Somehow the Young Lords find out about this. They send Obed Lopez and Obed Lopez, Lopez is the founder of LADO, the Latin American Defense Organization. Um, and this sort of intra inter Latino group uh, in the city. But they send Obed to the Presbyterian Conference, say, look, you need to go tell these Presbyterians and, and show them uh, our demands. And they were, listen, they knew what they were doing when they sent Obed. Obed knew how to dress, all right? He was quite fashionable, okay? Um, he was very professional, super smart guy, articulate, and all of that. Guess who else was going to be at this Presbyterian Conference? James Foreman, okay? We're talking about the Black Manifesto. So Obed shows up, Foreman is there, they have a conversation. You know, um, it, the Presbyterian Church had no idea, uh, or at least had a limited idea of what the Young Lords are doing in Chicago. They knew about Foreman, but Obed really opens their world to what happens. Um, and it gets to be a sort of a longer story here and how we go, but essentially, what is important is that this small occupation turns into the, the young lords getting a grant from the Presbyterian Church, using that money to put a proposal together, uh, a professional architectural firm to develop a uh, mixed income neighborhood plan for Lincoln Park. That, by the way, reaches the city of Chicago and is up for debate. They end up losing the vote Lincoln Park looks very different now than it did back then, no question about it. But, uh, but they fought and they fought hard. That attention and what they did there is what sparks what happens in other places because folks in LA and folks in Houston are, are listening in. And certainly the young lords in New York City are listening into what's happening. Yeah, and there's such a story here about so, well, there's so many stories within this story that I think are, are, are also connected to today. I mean, so um, Francis Negro Montaner writes about uh, the style of the Young Lords and she focuses particularly on New York City, but she talks about the intentionality with which uh, the Young Lords in New York City, but I think you can also look at it in this story here, the intentionality within which aesthetics comes in, right? To send, you know, the most respectable looking person that you have into the conference space to make sure everyone is going to look at him and then they're going to get their you know their wigs ripped off as they say you know it's such a strategic such a strategic it, move it is and and let me tell you man i mean obed gets there and um you know foreman is charismatic brother i mean foreman is doing his thing and he's got their attention white those, those white presbyterians man they were blown away by him here comes obed he's quiet you know, he's not the tallest guy in the world, okay? He's not the most charismatic guy in the world, but he's well-spoken and he's dressed well. And he, you know, he, he tells them what's going on in a very forthright and direct way. Yeah. And, and the here's other- what, Here's what one of the Presbyterian leaders says, you know, Foreman, they, they know what's happening. Actually, Foreman's folks were occupying offices in uh, New York City at the New time in 69. Um, and, and one of the white Presbyterians in an article that I found said, you know, the Spanish Americans, which is what they referred to Obed, uh, Obed's group and the Young Lords as, the Spanish Americans, they sound like far off thunder, is mm. what he said. And I found that, I mean, that's why I named the article Far Off Thunder or, 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 you know, something like that, because here it is, 1969, you've got Cesar Chavez leading the greatest agricultural rights movement in U.S. history already for like four years, you know, when he kicks off in Delano in 65, you've got the Chicano movement in full swing. They walked out of schools in LA the year before. And here are these white Presbyterians like, who are these Spanish Americans? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. who are they? They're like far off thunder. We don't even know who they are. And so 
it's these occupations that I make the case uh, in the book that really sort of begin to uh, blow down the doors of the institutional church. It's not to say that Latinos weren't already active. It's not to say that, um, you know, in 69, everything changes. It's just that nobody had come as strongly as the Young Lords and Mexican-Americans in Houston uh, or, mm -hmm. or in LA had uh, prior to that. Yeah, and there's a whole story too about, you know, the the competing narratives of the Young Lords, um, but also, you know, in other areas being like, of course the church would help take care of the poor. And then the question of, you know, what are actually the ideas or the theo ideologies of the church, in this case, McCormick, in this case, Presbyterians, of somehow ideas of private property, ideas of land acquisition, ideas of urban renewal, not being contradictory to the ideas of gentrification or, or, or rather not being contradictory to, you know, their conception of the gospel. Meanwhile, you have these people on the ground that are like, actually, my abuela is going to not have a house next week right, right. if you keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, to be fair, man, and to be honest, churches are dealing with their own, you know, sort of questions about whether they're going to remain in the city. Mm -hmm. And this is especially poignant in Houston, where the suburbs are taking off and the expressways and the interstates being built in that city. That concrete is taking literally churches out of the inner city and taking them to Katy, the, the, the suburbs. But churches are dealing with what is it that they're going to do? Are they going to stay in there or are they going to go? And they mm -hmm. left, man. They left. And this is where activists, you know, and organizers uh, on the ground really begin to say, you know, um, we need to call them out for abandoning us uh, because they can go and rebuild their sanctuaries. Uh, we're just going to go somewhere else and pay higher rent inevitably. Right. And there's uh, there's a question I have for you here also as a, as a historian of how did you coming from your context in Texas, um, and I've been to College Station, I was greeted by a cow, all due respects to Texas A&M, you know, coming from New York City, that was a pretty big shift. But how do you, how did you navigate as a researcher, um, going from your context down in Texas, going to, to Lincoln Park, Chicago, going to uh, East Harlem here in New York City, um, going to LA, all these places that just uh, are, are urban in very particular ways. And what I mean by that is that they're the ways that uh, streets are shaped, the ways that people talk to each other, the ways transportation exists there is all shaped by their own unique regional histories. So how did you navigate that as a, as a scholar, as a historian writing these stories? That's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I write about in the book, at least early on, is I say I don't I wasn't born or raised in any of these cities uh, and I don't come across as having figured these cities out. Right. Um, that would be horrible <laughs> to say. Right. But um, but I do say that I grew up surrounded by churches and I and I do say that I grew up surrounded by folks that, um, you know, uh, care deeply about their neighborhood but also in contact with a lot of churches that wanted to isolate and not do anything and not be involved. I mean, certainly that was, you know, a part of, I mean, I went to, you know, uh, veladas that stayed, you know, campañas that stayed up until three in the morning singing and dancing and, and all of that and worshiping God. But I also went out and, you know, put up sheetrock and painted homes and all that. I mean, I saw the whole spectrum of Latino evangelicalism. I lived it, I grew up in it, and I, I feel like I know it. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and the religious traditions of our communities. Um, but, but the cities were another thing, man. I'm from the border, you know, Brownsville is not a very big town. Um, uh, thank goodness for Google maps to help me get around and figure out the subway system in New York city. Uh, and also thank goodness to very gracious, uh, my, my hosts in each of these cities, right. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with Lilia Fernandez in Chicago, um, you know, yourself, Joanna Fernandez and others in, in um, uh, New York City that helped me to sort of understand, um, you, know, um, you know, here's how you get around, right? And here are the particulars of the city. Uh, I had also done some oral histories in my, for my first book on the Mennonites of Latinos that lived in East Harlem. And so I had sort of gathered some of that, you know, and then going to LA 
And you know, I mean, you know, you go to LA, you're, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're going to be writing Chicano history in, in LA. Even if you're a Chicano historian, you're still from Texas, man. So you're, <laughs> you know, there's a whole thing there. Uh, but folks out there also, you know, received me um, and and helped me understand the dynamics of neighborhood politics in that area. I met some wonderful, wonderful uh, people along the way um, that I think, you know, guided me. Uh, throughout. And this is something that I do even in my teaching. If I talk about urban areas or about cities, if I have students in my classes from those areas, I really try to bring them in to talk about what it's like to live there, what it's like to, to have been born or raised, um, you know, in the city. And I think as researchers, being honest and upfront about our, our own limitations as outsiders is fundamental. It's really, yeah. really fundamental because here I am as a storyteller, and I'm going into somebody else's church and somebody else's neighborhood. And I want to make sure that I honor the stories that I tell. And I want to make sure I get it right. Mm -hmm. Super, super important. I think for all of us, no question as scholars, but it's, it's almost next level when people are telling you their stories, when you're doing oral history interviews of folks that were out there getting this work done. And I'm coming in, you know, um, and saying, I want to tell this story the best way that I know how help me understand your city, help me understand what the neighborhood was like, what it would have looked like in 1969, and then just let people talk and let people open themselves up, um, you know, to sharing uh, for me. I did probably around 20 or more oral history interviews uh, for this and got in touch with the folks that were in each of these occupations. To be fair, and, and, and just as a reminder here, in LA, it wasn't an occupation. It was a disruption of Christmas Eve mass. Right. Um, but I got to speak to, to folks that were a part of each of these situations. And um, it was a it was a it was a lovely experience. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't do my research any other way. It just takes longer. It just means that the research is going to take longer. The book is going to take longer to write. But uh, for me, there's no other way. And, you know, this leads to a question about the book specifically. So in, in the book, you talk about um, El Barrio or the Latinx neighborhood being uh, a central, not just geographic, but also uh, imaginary space for uh, Chicanx and Latinx history. You you go as far as to say at one point that, um, quote, place matters in Latino history. And yet it strikes me that the stories you tell are from very different places. And I'm sure that even going to these different places to do these oral history interviews, um, and even just walk around the neighborhoods, uh, it hits you. I mean, every time I go to Chicago, it strikes me that it takes me three years to get anywhere because the city is so geographically large. You know, I'm used to this like nine mile by three mile island that I call Manhattan. Um, and LA, I mean, the mountains, ocean, you know, I feel very claustrophobic in LA every time I'm out there. Um, and, and yet that speaks to the point that you're raising that place matters, place shapes how these stories are, to are told. So could you tell me a little bit about kind of the regional differences that you see in these stories? And also maybe what does that tell you about the regional differences that we might experience um, as Latinx folk in the US? You, you know, I think we are currently, um, you know, I say this as a collective, right, of, of scholars and, and folks that are doing this, this sort of work on the civil rights movement and, and the Latinx freedom movement uh, in particular. We are writing um, the first draft of that history of Latinx, of the Latinx freedom movement and what that actually means. And, you know, I mean, there's there's debates on either side. I remember them in grad school, right? Where if you start talking Latinx freedom movement, are you disregarding the Chicano movement? And there's still a lot that we need to do there. Um, and I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, I'm trained as a Chicano historian and yet all of my work has leaned heavily toward writing about the Latinx freedom movement um, and, and all of those experiences, primarily because the people that I write about were not just I mean, they lived in the Southwest, but they had interactions with folks across the globe, really. And to, to not honor those connections, I think we miss out um, on a huge point about uh, why, these, why these movements were as national as they were, uh, and yet focused on, uh, on the barrio. 
Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look at look at the historiography. You've got Virginia Sanchez Corral who writes Colonia from Colonia to Community um, in the late late seventies, early eighties, and you've got and and in terms of Puerto Rican history. Um, and then in Chicano history, you've got Al Camarillo, um, you know, that um, Chicanos in a Changing Society. Two mm -hmm. classic books in two different era, you know, two different points of the country that speak to, you know, the canon, sort of the development of Chicano and Puerto Rican studies very separately. But where do they start? The center is the barrio. I mean, Al Camarillo talks about the barrioization uh, process and the making of community. That's what Virginia Sanchez Corol is also talking about. And I think they really set the stage for how it is that we can think about not just Chicano or Puerto Rican and not just sort of a vertical relationship to white supremacy or to white institutions, but a more horizontal look at these communities and the ways in which um, you know, they thought about it. But you can't do that at least for at least of what, what at least of what we know now. And I think it's only going to change and evolve and grow. But I think you still start in the barrio and you still start in very specific locations in communities that were heavily Puerto Rican, heavily, um, you know, Mexican-American. Um, and what you begin to find inevitably is that as you almost have to start to say, yes, the young lords were Puerto Rican, but they were predominantly Puerto Rican. They were not all Puerto Rican, right? Right. There were Cuban folks, there were Dominicans, Mexicans, um, and you think about Catolicos por la Raza or the Mexican-American Youth Organization or the Young Lords in Chicago. And in each of these spaces, um, you have folks that are, um, you know, uh, representative of multiple groups. Yes, Chicanos and Chicanas and Puerto Ricans were in the majority in many cases, but, but not these were not solely uh, Chicano and Puerto Rican, right? Yeah. Uh, Obed Lopez that I mentioned earlier in Chicago with the Latin American Defense Organization was a Mexican immigrant. Uh, mm -hmm. So was his brother Omar Lopez, who was um, a, a huge and very um, important leader in the Young Lords in Chicago. Yeah. So, and then so, so, so that that's 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 sort of what 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 you know where we begin. You be, you inevitably begin to find those things and you know, you, um, you start to realize that not only were they following each other and reading each other's newspapers, but they were meeting, they were coming together, they were being influenced by one another. And I think from there, you can sort of string out, begin to sort of develop what this narrative might look like when we think about the Latinx uh, freedom movement. Yeah, and in a lot of respects, you know, this emphasis or beginning in those, you know, micro stories and micro connections also, uh, elevates and, and shows just how much uh, these all these individuals were influenced by so many other things you know we think when you start with that story you start start looking at how in the same period Stokely Carmichael you know part of the uh, Black Panther Party Black Power yeah. Movement he starts going to Puerto Rico and starts uh, connecting with socialists in Puerto Rico and starts talking about uh, African Americans in the U.S. as part of an internal colony connected to and similar to the situation in Puerto Rico. You look at, you know, the crossroads. also used, right? In, in right. Also, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, you also talk in the text, and I think this is uh, important to highlight that these occupations of space is also connected to the Red Power Movement and the occupation of Alcatraz um, by various First Nations people. So it's a moment also where you have this connection to third world solidarity movements. I mean, People traveled to Cuba to get to know the revolutionaries there. People were learning from uh, from China what was happening uh, with the Chinese revolution there. Um, so it was a moment in many respects where even before the term transnational gained, you know, mobility in both positive and negative ways in the 90s, they were deeply transnational, uh, all these activists that, that were analyzing. And it really, starting in that community level, really highlights the interconnections uh, there in a, in a beautiful way that I think lends a lot to how we might think about our present struggles and our present political moments of how, you know, our shared contexts and shared histories uh, influence our understandings of the past, our understandings of our present, and what we might do in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, that leads to uh, uh, another question that I have for you, um, 
which is in the period, you know, there are so many period being the 60s and 70s, there are so many Latinx movements going on, but there's also the black power movement that has great uh, power, you know, not to be redundant, but, um, has gained a lot of mobility and that a lot of these Latinx organizations look to not only as partners, but as inspirations. And I noticed that in the text, particularly in the Apostles for Change, you kind of stay away from using the term brown power that was also uh, used in the period. We have uh, organizations like the Brown Berets taking um, the idea of brownness as a political moniker to make movement. Um, but you note that many, uh, in the, any in these organizations you looked at also looked at black power as not only an inspiration, but also they, something they themselves identified with. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit more about how as a historian, you make that decision about what terms to use um, to refer to these various groups. Yeah, and no, great, great question. I struggled a lot with this, um, had a lot of great conversations with people uh, along the way, including yourself, um, about what to do with this, because I think if I wouldn't, if I'm just talking about, um, you know, the Southwest, or if I'm talking about the Chicano movement, um, you know, brown power was so central to that projection of uh, identity um, and it meant so much. And what I did not want to do is just sort of assume that, you know, even though we're fighting for very similar things, that somehow these terms translate equally uh, across space and across place and, and region, right? Um, it's very difficult to sort of do that. And I didn't want to just sort of water down the term either, because I think it it's very historic and it's culturally situated and contextually situated um, in, in, in many cases, um, you know, and I think it's not to say that it was irrelevant for folks on the East Coast or even in the Midwest, but just to say that when you're in, in an area and in a zone that is much more um, cosmopolitan, when you have uh, Afro-Latinos, Afro-Puerto Ricans that are part of it. Certainly Felipe Luciano is one of uh, the most important. Um, and even other Puerto Ricans that weren't necessarily of African descent that also took to black power before they got to brown power, right? Mm -hmm. Came to know and be influenced by the Black Panther Party. I mean, listen, in New York City, the Young Lords are instituting breakfast programs and that's coming directly from uh, the influence of the Black uh, Panthers. Uh, and so, um, and, and I'm not, you know, I mean, there's folks that would make the case and try to sort of argue in terms of like, well, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Young Lords or, you know, the Brown Berets or the Mexican American Youth Organization in Texas, we had our own ideas. We weren't all just influenced by the Black Panthers. I mean, Okay, that's that's definitely true, right? But I don't think you can uh, eliminate completely the power, not only visually but sonically, the sound of hearing mm -hmm. black power, um, the visible presence that the Black Panthers, a space that they took up in American culture, and the kind of respect that they demanded for themselves and for their people, um, you know, comes across very very directly when you think about and talk about groups like the Young Lords or the Mexican-American Youth uh, Organization. Right. Um, and, and so in trying to sort of, how do you do this, right? How can you, can I just use terms, if I'm talking about these multiple groups, can I just use brown powers and all-encompassing term? And I found that, that it wasn't the most helpful um, in, in, uh, in doing so. But they yeah. are radicals. These are folks that are going to the root they are trying to undo systems of inequality. They're not just trying, they're not just reformists. Uh, yeah. And that's the case that I'm making. And there might be some pushback on that point, but it is what it is. I'm, that's the case I'm making. And I'm, I'm wondering too, I mean, I know that you don't situate yourself as a, as a theorist. And I also know that this text, the, the, the goal of this text is to elevate these stories mm -hmm. um, and, you know, kind of, and give them, offer them to us to have a conversation. But I'm wondering, you know, as you reflect on these stories and these intricacies of brown power, black power, um, the 
you know, regional distinctions. Is it, why, why is it that you still uh, use the term uh, Latino in this? Is it helpful to even talk about Latinidad as a concept that spans the entire nation when we have all these distinctions regionally, these distinctions within groups? Um, is, there, is there power there? Um, and if so, where, what is the power? Yeah, um, man, what, what, what do you say about, I, I did that, um, <laughs> gee, wow, Jorge, you coming at, that's good though. What do you, what do you say about Latinidad? I, you know, Latinidad is, um, you know, emerges out of very specific political contexts. Uh, Felix Padilla talks about this. Uh, Lilia Fernandez talks about this. I think it happens in contexts where you have movements that are beginning to sort of emerge and people come together um, to sort of help each other out and serve each other in that way. I don't think it uh, diminishes or disappears or anything. I think there's a power to it that's sustaining. Um, and I certainly do believe that it, that it, that it can uh, occur across region, certainly with social media or even with television early on or print culture. Um, all of those things I think are, are, you know, are vital. What I did not, so I didn't delve into that conversation as much in the book, primarily because I, as a historian, I felt like I needed, you know, and, and you sort of uh, categorized me correctly in terms of a storyteller and I'm an empiricist, it's the way that I was trained, um, you know, just not enough of that print culture evidence um, that that would have linked these movements, um, you know, more directly. I did theorize on that. I did sort of think about, and there were moments where they were talking to each other, and I did find, you know, L.A. was watching what Chicago was doing. Activists in Houston go up to Chicago and they meet Chacha Jimenez, and you know, they learn about that. The, the young lords take trips to Chicago. By the way, that's a whole nother part of the civil rights movement we need to learn about. People got in cars and yep. went and visited each other. I yep. love that. You know, I think if somebody's going to do a like a Broadway play, you know, we don't know what those conversations were like, but you imagine what like Mickey Melendez and Juan Gonzalez and Felipe Luciano would have been talking about in that car on the way to, or that van on the way to Chicago. What that, mm -hmm. what might that have been like, you know? Anyway, I digress. <laughs> The point is the point is that yes, I think Latino is helpful. And, and I'll tell you why. And I think using Latino freedom movement is also helpful because for our readers and for the broader public, it gives us collectively a sense of, yes, these were different and distinct movements in different parts of the country. Um, but in many ways, they were fighting for the dignity and the rights um, of poor people and people of Latin American descent uh, in different parts of, uh, uh, you know, of the country. And being able to use Latino to identify those politics, I think moves us beyond that sort of regionalism um, that is often at play in some of our, our literature. How does um, the radical politics that you read about and write about and study influence your own engagement with uh, politics, whether it be in your daily life or just generally in your orientation towards your profession, towards the world, uh, towards society. Because, you know, part of what always strikes me as someone who um, also studies the Young Lords is that they weren't, and you named this correctly, they weren't looking to reform society. They were looking to create a new society and really build into or lean into what Marx calls the, the creation of a, a new person. He would say a new man, but a, a new person. And as a result, you know, they following Franz Fanon and others, you know, they push for the transformation of their communities structurally, but they also push for a transformation of themselves as individuals, gaining political consciousness, engaging political education, and really approaching the world differently. It was a different orientation towards yeah. existence. And right. so I'm wondering how how have studying all these movements uh, affected your engagement with the world, your engagement with politics? So let me go back to my church in Brownsville uh, to answer that question. Um, you know, I think I mentioned to you that we were a sanctuary church. Um, we're 
you know, Mexican American working class congregation, Central Americans, about a hundred at a time coming through our, our church. And I was in junior high at the time. Um, and, you know, the work that the church was doing might've been looked at as reformists, might've been looked at as just social service. They provided folks with food, place to clean up, new clothes, uh, or at least clothes that have been donated from the community, uh, you, you know, um, and access to a telephone to make a long distance phone call when a long distance phone call was a thing, right? Mm. Um, for our church, that was radical. Mm. Um, for a church that was probably under surveillance, more than likely under surveillance of the FBI at the time, for a church of Mexican-Americans, poor people, working people to do what they were doing, to take that kind of a risk was really, I think, um, a radical statement of their, their faith. Um, and I think that's what, you know, churches across the country, especially in this middle of this pandemic, continue to do. They don't get as much press sometimes, but there are churches doing amazing, beautiful work out there in the world today. So I come up in that where you do what you can, even within those limitations, um, as you begin to dream and imagine a new world. What I didn't know at the time is that as a church in Brownsville, we were theorizing a world without borders. Mm. We were imagining una comunidad that stretched from Brownsville to Nicaragua to Honduras, to Guatemala, and all of those places around there. Um, you're talking about this Chicano kid who never played soccer in his life. I grew up playing basketball and football, man. And then all these folks coming up trying to play soccer, I'm like, I don't play soccer. You know, that's, that's not my <laughs> role, right? But, but, you know, growing up in that church, I, you know, that sort of is embedded in me and how I think about the world. I think what you know this work does for me and how it inspires me and I hope it inspires the public out there as well is that um, occupying a church is a crazy idea. Ridiculous. <laughs> Disrupting Christmas Eve mass in Los Angeles. Um, you know, a, a church that was under the leadership of one of the most conservative um, you know, bishops and, and leaders in the church at the time. Um, a very conservative church in Los Angeles, um, occupying a church under the leadership of Southern Presbyterians in Houston. It's nuts, man. It's completely nuts. And yet the vision that comes out of it, the idea for community control, the mm -hmm. fact that communities should be in control, the fact that the government's not going to save us, nobody's, people are forgetting about us, people are leaving and they're leaving for the suburbs or we're being kicked out of our neighborhood because urban renewal and gentrification, it looked different in different places. Um, to be able to sort of reclaim that space and then dream up of new ideas of what a community could look like. Um, you know, I love the way that Joanna Fernandez phrases the occupation of, of the church in New York City, that it becomes sort of the staging ground for what develops as a New Yorkian poets cafe. Mm -hmm. There's poetry being read um, yeah, uh, in the church. Um, and we are reimagining uh, the space uh, of the church within whatever limitations people might or might not have had. That didn't concern the Young Lords or the Mexican-American Youth Organization or Católicos por la Raza in Los Angeles that would have been, you know, under attack. Their vision was the church must do more. The church must be engaged um, with its people, con la gente, right? And so... I think it, it, it serves as, a, as an inspiration that um, it's those ridiculous and crazy ideas that make it possible for us to live um, in a world where people um, you know, can experience and feel the sense of dignity. Uh, and people dismiss crazy ideas all the time. People are dismissing this notion of what they think is um, a radical notion of defunding the, the, the police. 
Um, you know, and yet we are easy to, to defund public education in, in this country, right? Um, but it's those ideas that move us in the direction, right? We have to dream these things first before we can put them uh, into action. And that's what I love. And that's what inspires me about the folks that I write about um, in this book. They were not afraid to dream. They were, yes, they were about critiquing what was wrong. They were about critiquing urban renewal, but they were not cynical. Um, and they were um, optimistic about the world that they could create. And I love that. And listen, in the world that we're all living in now, we need ideas. We need new ideas. And I, I, I see it in uh, Black Lives Matter protests. I see it um, in churches like the First Spanish United Methodist Church that are still doing amazing work in their community in the midst of this pandemic. Um, and that's what's inspiring uh, to me. And I hope that that spirit comes through, not just in an academic way. I could really sort of care uh, less about that, that stuff as much as I hope that people take from this um, the need for us to collectively dream as a community. Mm -hmm. So I think that I could talk to you about this for literally ever. Um, and Man, and I just, like, I, have... like, I just go on and on, you'll be okay, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> But I think that that's a great place to stop in no small part because when we think about why these stories matter, it's about, it's their stories about people in their communities dreaming new worlds into existence. Um, and I think it's important just to sit with that. It's important to sit with the fact that sometimes the story can just speak for itself. Um, and so I appreciate you, Profit, for uh, sharing this work with us so i'm looking forward to seeing it seeing it in the flesh and i want to thank everyone who's uh been able to join us here on the podcast and listening here thank you to hti for making this possible and the open glass initiative uh for really creating space to make uh our scholarship public facing um and engage these broader conversations that we're all connected to in our silos um but now we can connect to in different ways and different mediums so thank you to hti for that um, it's been great to talk to you, Profe, Dr. Hinojosa, about your new book, Apostles of Change. For those who are listening, please make sure to follow HTI Open Plaza and to look out for the publication and hopefully some discount codes because, you know, things are rough out here. Um, so hopefully the uh, press will give us some nice discount codes for, you know, published talking about this book here and everything, give it some good press. Um, but please make sure to listen and follow uh, for more. Much love to everyone who is out there listening. Stay safe. And if there's still a pandemic when this airs, please wear a mask and social distance. Jorge, you're the best, man. Good to talk to you. This was way too much fun. It should not have been this much fun, but it was, sir. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.